we are extremely fortunate to have such a distinguished speaker this afternoon. Uh, David Mussington has had a career in helping protect the, the nation's facilities and infrastructure. He's done everything from being a professor of practice at the University of Maryland to supervising security at Amtrak. He's worked with the National Security Council. Um, uh, he's worked with the Department of Defense. And uh, most recently, he has a role as an executive assistant director at our Department of Homeland Security. There's more you can read about him online, but rather than take any more of his time, let me introduce Dr. David Mussington. All right, thank you. And if uh, I could ask someone to scroll to slide two, please. While you're doing that, let me just say, uh, uh, SPAF, Gene, whichever you prefer. <laughs> um, great to finally get to do this. We've been talking about doing this for years, so it's 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 fun to finally get to speak to Sirius on on a topic that, as you said, I've been working on for a long time: critical infrastructure resilience and cyber physical convergence. Um, you know, one of the jobs, one of the parts of this job is the most fun is is engaging with people who are interested in the mission, um, and especially from the vantage point of someone who does cybersecurity, but also does physical security. And this job is in the infrastructure security division, which in the parlance of uh, CISA is one of the six mission divisions. Um, prior to CISA being created in 2018, the physical mission set pretty much dominated that with a counterterrorism focus with critical infrastructure and cyber as add-ons. Since 2018, that's flipped with cyber being the lead mission area with the others um, in in overlapping um, circles or in a Venn diagram where the critical infrastructure problem set is sort of a resultant of the, of the overlapping of counterterrorism and physical infrastructure security, soft targets in crowded places, and cybersecurity and critical infrastructure cyber risk as the, the real mission set elements. Um, but anyway, that's, that's sort of the overarching um, picture of what CISA does. But you know, we share some things in common with Sirius, actually. We both want the best training and education for highly skilled cybersecurity workforce. We worry a lot about um, recruiting, retaining, and laterally um, ingesting, I suppose, mid-career cybersecurity experts and subject matter experts in other disciplines where we have work. And we suffer some of the same dilemmas that the private sector does when they're trying to recruit uh, personnel. It's difficult when you can't compete on pay. So what we substitute instead is mission and problem set attractiveness. That means that we're typically oversubscribed, even though as part of the federal government, it's very, you know, it's a time consuming process to, to sort of actually get hired on. But once you are, you tend to have a pretty rewarding, um, rewarding experience. And a lot of people come back after being here for a little while, and a lot of people are banging on the door trying to get in. So cybersecurity, cyber education, risk education and risk communication to critical infrastructures is all part of our, our set of responsibilities. So just for the sake of um, the basics, I'll answer the what is CISA question. Um, and you know, we're at a pretty unique moment in US history because after a decade or more, and I think Spass known me at least that, that long, probably longer, we have a dedicated national cyber agency responsible for critical infrastructure risk mitigation. 
Um, that was an aspiration for a lot of, for, a, for a long time. There was dispute on whether a specific agency with that responsibility was A, viable, or B, likely to succeed given the other equities in place from the private sector and from other sector risk management agencies with overlapping responsibilities. Nonetheless, in 2018, we were created as the nation's cyber and infrastructure defense agency within the Department of Homeland Security. Now, the difference 2018 made was that previously we were a headquarters section. After 2018, we were a freestanding component, sort of like uh, CBP or FEMA. So created by the Congress with specific attitudes, specific ideas rather, that we wouldn't be a traditional governmental bureaucracy. Now we aspire to be different from government, but we're still government. So we have a lot of the same habits. For example, this is my seventh meeting of today. We tend to meet about everything and we need paperwork and memoranda to start doing anything and to know whether we in fact have succeeded. So a lot of bureaucracy here, but less bureaucracy than DOD, where I, I worked a while ago. Um, rather than bureaucracy, what we live for is collaboration, collaboration with the public private sector, public sector agencies across the federal space, the interagency, with state, local, territorial, and tribal jurisdictions, and most importantly, with the private sector, where much of the critical infrastructure set is owned, operated, and risk managed. So, what we have to do is make sure that we have a value proposition for what we're trying to achieve. That is, we, if we are seen as not adding to the solution to critical infrastructure, cyber risks and physical risks, then we won't be invited to the party. We don't have legal authorities to make people do what we suggest. We suggest best practices. We have services that allow people to assess their risk exposure. We have advice through um, protective security advisors and cybersecurity advisors deployed in 10 different CISA regions, which are the same region, same geographic footprint as FEMA regions, to provide assistance to government, to the private sector, should they seek it, or should they um, seek it, especially after an incident, ransomware or something similar. But it's a voluntary proposition that needs to show value in order for us to sort of achieve our mission ends. So collaboration and cooperation for information sharing, for action, for risk conversations to promote risk awareness of parts of CISA's mission, but not the totality of CISA's mission. And I'll sort of get to some more detail and some more proactive elements in a few minutes, but I want to sort of describe the main roles first. So first, we are, we're the operational lead for federal civilian executive branch cybersecurity. Now, what does that mean? It means that for FSEM or federal civilian executive branch agency, note that that does not include the intelligence community or DOD, um, we're responsible for implementing FISMA guidance um, or, or making sure that agencies adhere to FISMA guidance in the way they operate their networks and computers. Uh, that means reporting, it means patching, it means um, life cycle security risk management and everything associated with it. The second key portion of our of our mission, I suppose, is to serve as the national coordinator for critical infrastructure security and resilience under the National Infrastructure Protection Plan of 2013, and more importantly, under the Homeland Security Act of 2002. CISA inherits those roles from DHS, or it basically has been delegated those roles by the Secretary of Homeland Security. That means we lead the national effort to understand and manage and reduce cyber and physical risks to all critical infrastructures. 
And we do that without outside of the federal space, the ability to mandate behavior. Now, there's a couple of exceptions to that. We actually do regulate in the chemical facilities anti-terrorism area, and obviously in the, the federal civilian um, sector that I just described, we have some mandatory powers. But everywhere else, we are working with agencies like DOE that have some sort of regulatory uh, impact in their sector of responsibility. But those aren't CISA authorities. So it's a collaborative enterprise there as well. So we lead through example, we lead through the power of uh, speaking on behalf of the nation on homeland security, critical infrastructure, cybersecurity. But we're doing that in an environment where most of the important actors have the option of ignoring what we say. Uh, now, I, now, they can't really ignore us because we can have, we have the potential to, to make their behavior look in a bad light. For example, when we point out cyber risk best practices that people are ignoring, um, companies may, may feel embarrassed. Their shareholders may, may, be, may be upset, reputational damage after all, and state and local territorial and tribal authorities may be, may be upset that they feel that they're being made to bear risks that they wouldn't otherwise be bearing. But be that as it may, CISA as a national coordinator depends a lot on, on its reputation and its, its justifiable, I think, stance as a kind of neutral third party that speaks on behalf of Homeland Security writ large rather than on um, any specific um, cloistered interest. So the approach we take to this is sort of all hazards in one sense, but one hazard in another sense. By all hazards, it means that we're, interest, we're interested in disruption of critical infrastructures or preventing, mitigating disruption to critical infrastructures, whatever its source, be that purposeful or not purposeful, in the non-purposeful or natural accident or disaster, all hazards area, we collaborate with FEMA. We collaborate with other agencies that have um, response responsibilities um, under something called the Stafford Act. We are often called upon to do critical infrastructure risk assessments that show risk exposure and provide data and insights on risk mitigation. For the purposeful side, where you've got an attacker of concern or an adversary of concern, we're perhaps a bridge between the defense community, the intelligence community, law enforcement, and the critical infrastructure stakeholders themselves. So we're, we're in a sense, a stand-in stand for um, the more blunt instruments of investigation or defense. So at the end of the day, we're trying to fulfill overlapping roles. The first role, again, is we're trying to speak authoritatively on critical infrastructure risk, cyber and physical. Second, we're trying to fulfill that national coordinator role where we are a sector risk management agency for eight out of the 16 critical infrastructure sectors. Um, we try and operate as a sector risk management agency from a position of as an example to other federal agencies and so that we can assess cap capability of other agencies like DOE and DOT, et cetera. Um, and make sure that we're all offering the same services to critical infrastructures, of which you can put information sharing, the information itself in that bucket. You can put services, self-assessment tools, actual assessment uh, activities, 
by our personnel or by sector risk management agency personnel. Um, we also, of course, sponsor re university research and we have relationships with most of the national labs. So sector assessments often get done in the contract with national labs under our branding in a sense. Um, we also do um, maintain awareness of intelligence and scientific trends which may be predictive of future critical infrastructure challenges. Um, so paying attention to where technology is going, 5G, for example, um, helps us give advice that isn't, doesn't become obsolete quickly. So let me turn from, uh, from the why we do it, the legal and policy context, to the issue of cyber-physical convergence that I want to focus on today. So, you know, it's a commonplace observation that we live in a hyper-connected hyper world where cyber and physical um, domains, technical domains overlap with each other, where change is exponential, often unpredictable. You can't really talk anymore about security and risk management in a cyber domain without taking physical effects into, into account and vice versa. In addition, in the evolving threat environment, our mission's growth, that in, that in CIS's concern with cyber physical risk, it's also been driven by an increasing reliance or the observation that there's an increased reliance on linked systems and networks. Again, commonplace observations. The more dependent we become on, on computers and on critical infrastructures, vulnerable critical infrastructures and computers, the more the security risks um, become of concern. So we need to approach security, we think, from an integrated cyber and physical um, standpoint. The same way we need to also join in collaborative public-private models of response because the problem's owned by both sides. So we've done that in a few ways, and I'm gonna go through some executive orders and some policy documents and principles that we bring to bear on this problem. Um, now, as you may know, I'm a political appointee and we think our approach in the Biden-Harris administration differs from some of, the, some of our, our predecessors. Um, I think the biggest difference might be an overt approach that says we need risk reduction, not just risk management. Um, we've been managing risk for much of the two decades that I've been working in this, in this broad area. And the question has to be asked, are we in a measurably better situation now than we were in 2010 when I joined the Obama administration, for example? Is the threat more managed and deterred? Are defenses more able to handle unpredictable adversary um, behaviors? I think the answer to both of those is no. And I think there's a lot of reasons why that's true, but I'm gonna sort of try and frame this against the May 12, 2021 executive order that President Biden signed, uh, entitled Improving the Nation's Cybersecurity to Support Our Nation's Cybersecurity and Protect the Critical Infrastructure and Federal Government Networks. There's, a, there's more to the title, but you get the, you get the focus. In response to that executive order that again, create framed this more expansive risk reduction um, aspiration or ambition. CISA adopted a couple of um, initiatives that show, I think, our revised approach. First, we, we issue the cloud security technical reference architecture designed to guide agencies in an already planned secure migration to the cloud. So pre previously, there wasn't a, an authoritative technical reference architecture articulated by DHS at least to guide agencies in how they'd 
use cloud, cloud services. So the migration was underway without clear guidance on what to do. Second, we adopted a overtly, a pretty common um, concept from the private sector, zero trust maturity model for understanding the strategies that agencies should adopt um, in the way they architected their networks and, and device interconnection. We also provide several ways that scissor services can support zero trust solutions, um, allowing us to leverage the powers we do have as the federal civilian agency um, oversight for cybersecurity um, to converge on a zero trust environment from where we are now. So zero trust obviously can be used as a way for agencies to secure their application and data within the enterprise, as opposed to focusing on traditional network perimeter models, which the federal government has been hanging on to for far too long. Additionally, CISA developed two playbooks in November 2021, responding to, the exec to Executive Order 14028. First is the federal government's cybersecurity incident and vulnerability response. Um, second, you know, these provide civilian agencies with a standard set of pr procedures for vulnerability and incident management impact, impacting federal networks. There was guidance before, but it wasn't authoritative and in one place, certainly with a CISA label reinforced by our authorities. Institutionally, we also developed something called the Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative, which was launched in August of last year. Um, we launched StopRansomware.gov, which was a one-stop shop to tell people how to prepare and respond to ransomware incidents. We reformed the Trusted Interconnection, TIC 3.0 um, procedure or set of procedures that guide how federal civilian agencies access the internet and cloud services. And again, we've been publishing best practices guidance um, to the public sector, which has been imitated in the private sector, just adopted as a best practice, uh, also in definitions of what due diligence and, due, and standards of care are in critical infrastructure, um, cybersecurity risk management. Um, I'll skip over the CISA global strategy, which um, I invite you to go to CISA.gov and review. We've also created a cybersecurity advisory committee with some corporate um, private sector representation to give the CISA director, Director Easterly, access to academic and private sector expertise in framing the way CISA is operated and run. So that's sort of the, the institutional um, initiative-based um, flow down from the May 21st last year executive order. A couple of words on the threat landscape that people uh, on this um, webinar probably know as well as we do here, since um, you know, I'm, not, I'm not convinced that the insights we get uh, inside buildings like this one are better than the ones I used to read when I actually had chances to read actual uh, academic literature on this topic. But anyway, um, the last year has taught us anything is that the threat landscape is only going to get more and more complex and threatening. Uh, I am to be uh, fairly pessimistic about the way the threat landscape is evolving, but um, you know, I'm prepared to be convinced by, by contrary evidence. Having said that, according to the Digital Journal, ransomware damage has increased by 935% since 2021. And as Log4j showed, um, since December of, of 2021, the threat landscape is not getting easier to manage. 
The mission to protect our critical infrastructure's vital systems and functions has become undoubtedly more important, but our capabilities to do so are still lacking. Um, and the risk is exacerbated by the purposeful strategic action of nation states as threat actors, now, even if threat actors aren't attributed as nation states. Often states use proxies, non-state actors with whom they can disavow uh, connections um, to seed the battlefield, surveil the battlefield or undertake micro level actions, theft, um, generating a mis-malinformation online and just proliferating attack tools uh, in ways that make the threat environment much more difficult and much less predictable. Um, from solar winds to NotPetya to the extortion and ransomware um, activity of Russian organized crime, it's pretty clear to see that you know, the criminals are going where the money is and the money is in interconnected systems and institutions and individuals. Our ability to predict and preempt those activities is not converging on the risk and threat fast enough. And do I think we're falling behind? Yes, I do think we're falling behind because the asymmetric advantages of the threat actor are not being matched by innovation and agility on the defense yet. That's why the Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative, which basically shares the situational awareness of big internet presences, think AWS, think Microsoft, think Palo Alto Networks, um, Cloudflare, et cetera, um, who, uh, who have enhanced awareness on activity online, have advanced awareness on where malware comes from, what the incidence of attack is, and perhaps can empower interdiction of, of uh, negative behavior uh, in advance of where government is. Um, I think that's sort of the, the overall summary of sort of what I had to say really, that the internet and cyberspace as a whole are not becoming more manageable. What they are is a source of risk that the nation has to innovate in terms of organization, in terms of concepts for mitigating cyber physical risk in new ways. Um, and that's a challenge to us here organizationally. It's a challenge to the science and engineering research that we sponsor. It's a challenge to our outreach that we do through these mechanisms and policies that I've tried to outline. Um, you know, at the end of the day, the country's most vital systems and functions are a shared responsibility. The mission of establishing strong and effective cybersecurity can only be established through collaborative partnerships across the public and private sectors. One of the biggest challenges there is the building or the destruction of trust relationships between key players that have contrasting incentives to collaborate. After all, private sector often fears regulation or government intervention into business operations. And governments sometimes think the business is more interested in profit and loss than they are uh, in national security. After all, businesses are in business to be in business, not for homeland and national security. That's our responsibility it's really our collective responsibility to execute those contrasts of, in, of incentives, not necessarily conflicts of interest, but contrasts in incentives can impede um, the defense properly organizing itself. And I think that's something that I become more aware of since I took this job than, than I was when I was just researching. Um, you know, there are other equities in play here as well. Um, the notion that law enforcement and crime should be the locus of 
federal policy in this area is one that has some adherence inside the government and inside the private sector. To those who prioritize crime control and crime reduction in cybersecurity, there are a whole set of legal and other mechanisms that, that um, favor investigation, they favor prosecution, that may argue in an opposite direction from those who are interested in enhanced and shared situational awareness on risk response um, that leads to a better ability to defend at scale rather than prosecuting individuals for negative behavior. Um, I want to make sure that you understand that CISA has a collaborative, non-law enforcement, non-intelligence community perspective on cybersecurity, and that we haven't forgotten our critical infrastructure physical security origins uh, in that we have to do both. Just as an example, I spent the last couple of weeks worrying about protecting faith-based institutions from active shooter threats and worrying about school safety from both physical and um, MDM style threats. That's as much of a concern at CISA as the protection of critical infrastructure from cyber physical convergent threats and risks. So there's a broad span of control issue at CISA where we have a lot to do. And like most people in government, we don't think we have the resources to fully execute optimally on all of them. Um, but our goal nonetheless is to protect critical infrastructure, cyber and physical, and all of those who depend on it um, for the benefit of the country um, and individual citizens for safety and security. So with that, um, Gene, I'm ready to stop and just take questions. Um, over to you. Uh, that sounds great. I, but we did get uh, your slides, so thank you for that. Um, do you want to go through on the Q&A or would you like me to read them to you? Um, it'd probably go better if you read them, given our connectivity challenges today. All right, sounds fine. Um, is CISA recommending that critical infrastructure entities take additional steps to prepare for the possibility that Russia will launch a cyber attack amid the tension with Ukraine? What is CISA doing to help these companies and municipalities prepare? And thank you. So CISA is, has issued a sequence of advisories over the last weeks, um, recommending um, redoubling efforts to um, implement prior guidance that we issued best practices to secure systems from ransomware, identity theft, and other vectors that are used by adversaries of all kinds to threaten key systems. We do have specific outreach to critical infrastructures to reinforce that messaging. That's probably as far as I can go. Um, we're mindful of geo geopolitical issues that change the threat, con threat risk constellation and we are paying attention to, as is the entire U.S. interagency, U.S. government, to threat trends in Ukraine. Yeah, and I would uh, uh, imagine from what we know about general world affairs, there are other, uh, other players on the scene who might like to take advantage of the tension and make it look like somebody else. So we, uh, we, we should not lose our focus or put all our focus probably in just one place. I think that's right. I think that, you know, from our point of view, disruption to critical infrastructure is the concern and whoever is trying to execute those, generate those disruptions um, has our attention. Um, and given that a lot of attribution, at least maybe not technical attribution, but sort of functional and political attribution is often after the fact, 
and we need to pay attention to the disruption and mitigating things, um, you know, at the incident level or pre-incident level. And that means for the defense, um, reinforcing their adherence to some best practices that are commonly known. Great. Another question. Could you please speak to the specific roles and responsibilities of the Infrastructure Security Division and the most prominent efforts led by ISD? Okay, so the Infrastructure Security Division is, has a complicated set of uh, roles and broad scope of responsibilities. Um, broadly speaking, we're responsible for the physical infrastructure security um, programs and responsibilities of CISA. So that means uh, counter IED, it means infrastructure assessments and analysis, it means school safety, doing something about both um, threats to school buildings and institutions and students, but also threats to the education institute, education complex, including school boards and those who, who create threats to public education. Um, we also do something uh, in our security programs division that addresses not only school safety, but infrastructure um, security of public facilities. So think the Capitol on the 6th of January and how, and, this, and the issues of security that, that became visible there, what to do about them is within ISD's uh, subdivision. So that we've done, we've done analyses of that event, the successes and failures of law enforcement and other responses. And we've made recommendations for better national capital region security as a result. Um, think about this we regulate in the area of chemical security so the chemical facility anti-terrorism standards where we have 303 um, chemicals of interest as they're called in the legislation where we regulate physical custody and, and the conditions of transfer and we inspect facilities according to that regulatory code um, go down the list here um, for integrated assessments and analysis, we have a, an annual risk assessment program for critical infrastructure regions. Um, across the 10 regions, we do eight to 10 RAPS regional resilience assessment plan assessments, which are multi-year in nature. So for example, we've, we've got a couple that are completing in the, for the Port Authority of New York. We're doing similar ones in Texas, in California and elsewhere. We start three to five new starts every year. So we have three to five completing and three to five starting every year. We've been doing that for over a decade. So we have a lot of legacy data on critical infrastructure, hardness and resilience, um, which can be used by people who are creating big projects. For example, in the president's infrastructure plan, we're providing support to uh, Mitch Landry's office to make sure that the attack surface, physical and cyber, is at least, um, oh, let me, how can I say this? It makes sense to try and design security principles into new infrastructure projects rather before rather than after. So we're trying to help in the design and um, crafting of those infrastructure plans so that when we get new infrastructure, it's resilient over the long term rather than short term. Uh, I think that's kind of a quick tour of what the infrastructure security division does. Um, the other question? Uh, yeah, so that's, that's great. Um, so here's another question. How is CISA supporting talent development, particularly in OT ICS security? Okay, so we have talent development in a couple of ways. We have mentorship and internship programs where we hire students um, for 
short term to long term since often often we hire interns as staff members um, in technical areas where people's education maps directly to the technical needs of, for example, the threat hunting division in the cybersecurity division. Um, we also have outreach in two universities, relationships with the universities. Um, Carnegie Mellon, I'm not sure about relations with Purdue per se, but Carnegie Mellon, Stanford, uh, MIT, um, and some other places we actually have uh, not a presence, but close relations because faculty there are affiliated with some advisory committees that we operate. Um, in terms of outreach, we're about to start an outreach phase to HBCUs where, um, you know, I'm directing that in a, you know, way to open the azimuth a little bit, open the aperture a little bit rather on the institutions that we actually relate to. We have a habit like my former employers at University of Maryland, where if we wanted to read to recruit diverse faculty, we would go to the, the least diverse institutions in the country thinking that we we're gonna do better than we had done in the past. So we're gonna break out of that pattern. We're gonna to go to a diverse set of institutions to both recruit staff potentially, to find research that's going on in those institutions and try and incentivize collaboration between our research and assessment subdivisions and activities and academic institutions. And there, there's a fair history of that sometimes in collaboration with the national labs, but often independent as well. DHS Science and Technology is the principal sponsor of that effort. So DHS S&T is the, the principal part of DHS that we work with to reach out to, to uh, higher education. Um, on the non-science, non-student um, outreach uh, bits, we just reestablished the Homeland Security um, Education Advisory Committee, which is comprised of university presidents, uh, I'm an ex officio member of that, um, but that that was sunsetted at the end of the last administration, and we took six to eight months to recraft it with new members, with with a better, more systematic approach to to interacting with universities and colleges. Uh, that's a work in progress, but um, that's what um, Secretary Mayorkas has directed us to do. Thank you. Um, I'll just mention as an aside here that, to my knowledge. Uh, DHS does not have a relationship with us here at Purdue the way some of the other universities you mentioned. Uh, and considering we have one of the oldest and the largest cybersecurity group in the country, uh, it, it seems odd that that hasn't been pursued. So maybe we can take that offline at some point. Uh, yes, absolutely. absolutely. Uh, so another question here, and I'm not sure uh, I'll ask the questioner to to retype the question. It's a, can you give some examples used in CISA? And I, you need to tell us examples of what because I can't I can't do that. Um, one question is: I would like to hear your perspective on insider threats in the context of critical infrastructure security. Um, so, insider threats are the single most threatening um, factor in trying to secure an enterprise because they're the hardest to detect. Uh, and when you try to detect them, there's all sorts of reasons why you may fail um, to detect them. First, and we're working with that here at uh, CISA, organizational culture matters. And if you start to target your own employees, your own staff as threats, that disincentivizes a lot of the community-mindedness and loyalty that is the best protection against insider threats. So the problem of detection is isn't is a massive one and it's one where you know we 
we have some concepts and we have some publications on scissor.gov that point towards some best practices for doing so, for you know making sure that you have the proper infrastructure in place um, to track behavior that you think correlates with with risk where people over for example um ignore privilege restrictions on their role so that if people are accessing information that is beyond their 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 professional need to know and this isn't to impose the governmental need to know principles on the private sector but if people have specific roles in organizations and specific accesses to um, information that correlates with that role. And if you get systematic violations of expected access procedures and behaviors, that probably is, a, is a, something to can be concerning. Another thing is in securing intellectual property um, in a complex production cycle. There are often reasons why strong constraints on the diffusion of information can defeat business goals. So again, you have that counter incentive where what you're trying to do for insider threat and risk mitigation can actually complicate your business. So if the choice is between close tracking of insider threats and a free flowing business environment that increases the bottom line, guess which one gets selected? So, you know, insider threats are a chronic, um, source of underperformance, I think, in, in industrial security um, venues, public and private sector alike. And we have some standards on CISA.gov that suggest a path forward. That's great. Um, and what you outline there is, is uh, a problem that many organizations face outside of the ones you look at. So uh, thank you for that. Um, question here, are there tiers or levels of critical infrastructure? Uh, if so, could you elaborate on those different tiers? So, you know, intuitively, one can think that there are tiers of critical infrastructures. And historically, BHS has talked about things called lifeline sectors, which include, you know, electricity, power generation, public health, um, transportation, um, financial sector management, and government, and government services. So that would, 10 years ago, that would have been people's sort of hardcore of critical infrastructures that had a higher priority. The reason they were argued to be a priority was because they enabled the economy or enabled government services or enabled security. So that's sort of a traditional way of thinking about critical infrastructures and which ones have the highest priority. Having said that, it's it's a kind of a static list, right? And we keep a lot of a lot of lists of things that we think are prior, priorities, and then we try and manage the to the list. We try and manage compliance to list-based priority behaviors. And we, we use imperfect artifacts to correlate compliance with safety and security. Uh, you know, I, I'm creating a, a cartoon here, a caricature of, of the core Homeland Security Risk Management approach of the last 15 to 18 years. Um, let's ask, let's end, ask and answer the question. Um, right now, are we better able and more situationally aware regarding risks to critical infrastructure than we were 15 years ago. Now, I argue we aren't. TISA doesn't take a position on that point, but I'm telling you that I think that we are not as situationally aware as we need to be. And we ignore at our parallel peril interdependencies between these prioritized sectors, which are actually more problematic than the sectors themselves. So a few years ago, a colleague of mine is now sort of leaving the agency fairly soon, Bob Kalaski, um, sponsored the 
an innovation, I think, in the way we should think about interdependent risk, which is national critical functions. So rather than 16 critical infrastructure sectors, he conceptualized, he and his division, 55 national critical functions, which really do focus on the delivery of services to the economy and to the country. Now, what are national critical functions? National critical functions are essential functions so, so significant that their disruption or denial would, under, would lead to critical um, damage to national security and the national economy. The textbook definition is pretty close to that. It's in that May 21 um, executive order that I mentioned earlier. The critical functions are things like provide electric power, provide healthcare, secure transportation, and looking at all of the critical infrastructure pieces and nodes that contribute to the execution of those functions. That scissors approach to cybersecurity and to critical infrastructure protection at the national level. It means focusing on the interdependencies and identifying critical nodes and critical clusters of dependence that scale if an adversary were to exploit them into a grievous national assault or national insult to um, economic security, public safety, um, national security. Um, an example of that kind of focus is in Colonial Pipeline a few months ago. Now, ransomware attack on a pipeline operator is serious. The disruptions and the gas lines and the and the and the price inflation that was triggered by the by that event, those effects show that the, the function affected providing provide fuel, provide electric power, provide transportation. Um, that's where the effect was most visible. That's where CISA was focused, making sure that we understood those risk dependencies, not at the sector level, but at the at the functional delivery of service level. And that's kind of the uh, the shift that we're, that's underway on um, that says it's underway in something that people may not be tracking, which is uh, the nine, that section 9002B report that was issued at the end of last year to the NDAA of 2021. And the Congress asked us to look at critical infrastructure sectors, how they were defined, how federal government agencies were behaving in terms of risk, risk management and risk mitigation and sort of articulate some new standards and new concepts for how risk at the national level and at the regional level should be defined and managed. Those NCFs, national critical functions, is the way that we've chosen to, uh, to do that. They're defined, again, on CISO.gov. The National Risk Management Center, one of our, one of our divisions, um, has done a considerable amount of work uh, elaborating the national economy and critical service dependencies in the US and elsewhere using that conceptualization. So I'd recommend that to you as a, as a better way, I think, of thinking about critical infrastructure, cyber risk, and physical risk. So there's some follow-up to this in, in two parts here uh, in the Q&A, but um, does that mean that this is moving away from the idea of ESFs? Has DHS as a whole evaluated this perspective? Or are they too entrenched in the current system or do these uh, dovetail into the current system? Uh, they actually are designed to dovetail into the current system. I think what, they, what it shows is that coordination between ESFs and the NCFs and things like Stafford Act um, 
needs to be reconfigured. So things like PPD-21 and others, documents that are not that old, but they're, they're sufficiently old that they need to be modified to, to meet the more modern conceptualization. And there's, there's gaps in responsibility or in execute, or at least in execution of federal policy and federal support to state and local territorial and tribal, or tribal jurisdictions, for example, because of the limitations of a sector perspective on its own. So no, we're not, a, not abandoning the ESFs. We're building on those and on the national response framework and other adjacent frameworks to, to in a sense, bring the sector model into the 21st century. After all, it's quite old. Great. Um, another question here. Could you please speak to ISD priorities and efforts focused on climate change? Okay. Um, I think I can speak to CISA priorities and efforts focused on climate change. ISD's efforts um, fit into that broader, broader concentration. I think the principal area where we make a contribution is in our assessments area, where we, we do um, integrated assessments of infrastructure risk based on all hazards. So if floodplains or critical infrastructure is weakened by climate effect, our research and our assessments will show that over the life of the asset. So obviously big infrastructure segments, bridges, tunnels, um, metroplexes and ports around, uh, around um, urban areas are impacted by, by, sea, by sea level rise, by erosion, by flooding, by greater frequency and intensity of storms, all of that um, both warrants the more frequent execution of assessments to, to look at infrastructure risk exposure. It also allows us to articulate mitigation guidance to those reconstructing infrastructure. Think of the President's Infrastructure Investments and Jobs Act spending, 1.2 trillion, I believe. Um, big transportation projects are being undertaken, uh, big wastewater and water treatment investments are being made um, from the mundane replacing lead pipe to the rebuilding bridges and tunnels that, that, are, that the civil engineers tell us we're about to break down. All of those things are impacted by the physical environment and climate change-based disruptions to the infrastructures as we've known them. So our assessments contribute to the government's database of a, effect, and B, guidance on what to do. Thank you. Um, we have run out of both questions and time. Uh, it's been wonderful to have you here speaking with us. And perhaps there'll be a future occasion we can actually get you in person. And then we don't have to worry about uh, connectivity and video cameras right. showing up here. Um, but I would be yeah, it would be a delight to have you come visit. Um, I will follow up uh, uh, with email to you directly about that uh, uh, collaboration issue. Absolutely. And um, as a reminder to our audience, uh, there will be a video of this, uh, which, which does have the slides and audio. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll have a recording, maybe not a video, <laughs> yes. uh, that will be up on the website uh, and on YouTube within a few days. And also to remind you that we have another speaker next Wednesday on a different topic, but in the same general uh, thrust area of cybersecurity. 
So once again, our thanks to the Honorable David Mussingdon, and we look forward to future interactions and everyone please have a safe and warm afternoon or what's left of it. Thanks again. Good night. Good night.